0: he also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. Hey, churches, uh, we have this is our second and final message in Romans eight twenty-eight to thirty. We began it last week. These uh, these verses give to us the third great advantage, the faith advantage that we have as we live life in the Spirit, having been declared righteous by God through Jesus Christ in our justification. Uh, In the first portion of chapter 8, it was acceptance, and then suffering is that second advantage that we have, and now we have this word assurance. And verse 28 that we looked at last week assures us that God works in the good and the bad of our life to accomplish His ultimate purposes, which are good. What is that good? You know, in our world today, it tends to be interpreted materialistically, myopically. The the good that God is working is about me and my comfort and my security, my prosperity, my wealth, my health, or my significance. And that good is all about us in this physical world. But that is not what God is up to. Verse 28 tells us that God is working in everything to bring about the good of glorifying His Son, Jesus Christ, in us and through us. In verse 28, it gives us an everyday assurance. It brings the truth of the gospel and it interconnects it with the normal rhythms of our lives. Verse 28 gives us an everyday assurance. Verses 29 to 30 give us an eternal assurance, specifically that the good that God is working in us will inevitably and eternally remake us into the image of Jesus Christ. It is this grand cosmic plan, that he is carrying out right now in the lives of his sons and his daughters. And these verses, verses 29 and 38, talk about this. And they use words that, well, quite honestly, provoke, can, can provoke some strong reactions within the continuum of Christianity. Uh, these verses have often been described as the golden chain of God's redemptive plan and and that chain has five links in it and they center those five links center on the five main verbs that are in verses 29 and 30 and some of those verbs seem to dial people up and there's objections to this and and in a few moments we're going to look at a couple of those major objections that people have to the meanings of these words but we got to start with what does what do these verses mean and what are they highlighting and and what they are getting at is the sovereign grace of God that we experience within this redemptive plan these words that are so important and we need to understand what they mean if we're to to kind of get our arms around the 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 the, uh, form of this redemptive plan that God has put in action for us. The five words that are here, we're going to take them one by one. The first of which you see in verse 29 is foreknew or foreknowledge. It comes from the Greek word prognosco. It occurs seven times in the New Testament, and two of those times it has one meaning and five of the times it has another meaning. The the two times, uh, the the idea is kind of like uh, foresight. Foreknowledge is like foresight, to see something ahead of time and understand what is going to happen. So in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, uh, David uh, foresaw the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he knew that one of his lineage, one of his family line would be the Messiah because he foresaw that. And so there are those within the Christian community that take that definition of foreknowledge, of prognosco, and they apply it to verse 29. Frankly, I was raised this way. This is how foreknowledge was explained to me growing up and even in the seminary that I went to. And the narrative goes like this, that that God, he, before time began, before the war was, he looked down the corridors of time and he knew that on March the 1st, Joe was going to be at Covenant Church and he would hear the gospel preached and he would see it in the Lord's Supper. And when he was invited to trust in Christ, Joe was going to believe and commit his life to Jesus Christ. And so God, seeing that down the corridors of time, made a decision at that point to predestine Joe to be a part of his family. And so God's predestinating work is based upon his foresight of what he knows we would do when we heard the gospel. The problem with this view, right, is that first of all, foreknowledge in in this verse has nothing to do with events. It's about people. Right, And if you think about it, if God, based off what we've learned in the book of Romans and the way that we are born into this world, if God were to simply look down the corridors of time and make his decision based upon what we would do, what would God see? He would see a bunch of people shaking their fist at God. He would see a bunch of people rejecting God, sinning against God, serving self, wanting nothing at all to do with God rejecting the gospel itself. That's what he would see. And as a result, no one, not one person, would ever darken heaven's gates if this was the understanding of foreknowledge. Two times, though, it does have that meaning of foresight, but not in relationship to God. Five times it has a different meaning. It means to choose beforehand, to select ahead of time, that word foreknowledge, for before time, knowledge, it, it corresponds to a Hebrew word that really helps us understand what's going on here. It, it's a word that is uh, spelled Y-A-D-A, Y-A-D-A. And of course, how do we pronounce that, all of you Seinfeld fans, right? What is it? Yeah, yada, 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 right? But that's not how this, was wor- this is pronounced, it's yada, right? And, and yada is this idea of knowing. And it has a special meaning in the Old Testament, especially when it's used in conjunction with people or with God interacting with people. So, for example, in the Old Testament, a man and a woman would become husband and wife, and the Bible would say, and the husband knew his wife. Well, it's obviously good to know the woman that you're marrying, right? But that's not what the meaning is there. It's, it's, the, it's a euphemism for that intimate sexual love that takes place within marriage. And so God, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament, God foreknew the nation of Israel. He chose the nation of Israel out of the masses of nations and decided to set his love upon them, to enter into a special covenant relationship. And so in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, we see a great example of this, and I'm going to give you three different translations of this one verse so you can really get your head around the full meaning of this idea of foreknowledge. We see, um, you only, he's talking to Israel, God is saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, obviously, God knew intellectually, rationally, all the other nations of the earth. What he's saying here is, you are the one that I have entered into an intimate relationship with. You are the one that I have selected out of all the nations of the world to put my love upon. And you see this in the other translations, this concept of intimate love and choosing you out of all the families of the earth. And, of course, we know that the rest of that verse, he says, and this is why I'm going to punish you, Israel, because I have entered into this special love relationship with you. I chose you. You were the least of all the nations. I chose you to be my bride, and what have you done? You've committed spiritual adultery. And so now I have to respond to that adultery. He couldn't ignore it. We've got to have that understanding of foreknowledge, of Yeda and prognosco when we come to verses 28 and 29. The word means that God chose a select group of people ahead of time to set his love upon them, and through them he will accomplish his good purposes. That first link in the chain is important. If you don't understand foreknowledge, you're going to have problems with understanding predestination and calling and justification. The second link, right? Those who God foreknew, he predestined. Predestination. Well, you're talking about a word that creates heartburn in the lives of many Christians. It's this word right here, okay? It's it's the Christian version of a dirty word, okay? Okay? It's not a four letter word. How many letters is that? It looks like about nine or ten. But it's a ten letter dirty word, right? Predestination. People get heartburned over this. Look at it. Look again, break it down. What's the word pre mean? Hey, some of y'all are asleep. What's the word pre mean? Right, before, right? Before. Again, ahead of time, God decides destiny, destination, okay? Ahead of time, God has made a choice. He's choosing ahead of time a a new destination for those people who he's decided to set his love upon. God chose ahead of time to give us a new destiny, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, which also has our word of foreknowledge, or prognosco. He says, God the Father knew you. Prognosco knew you and chose you long ago, and his Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. Now, we're going to deal with the angst of predestination in just a moment when we get to objections. And there's a couple of main categories that that angst is expressed. But you know, I find in the lives of many believers, the heartburn is well intentioned because as we consider predestination and foreknowledge, the, the natural question is, why does, why did God not choose people whom I love and that are special to me? to set his love upon them. And that creates, that creates pain when we look at that and, and, and we consider that. And of course, we know that it, in that chapter is not totally written until judgment day. People will be in heaven. That will greatly surprise us. And some people won't be in heaven and that probably won't surprise us <laughs> or it will surprise us. But what I'd want to encourage you to do at least is not to begin to accuse God and say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that God would choose to love some people in a special way and not give that same love to other people. Listen, church, in Christianity, there's no equivalent to a participation trophy mentality. Okay? God has the prerogative of putting his love on those whom he wants to put on to. In fact, if God wanted to. It's perfectly within his rights to give absolutely everyone justice, and not one single one of us his loving mercy. He could do that, and it would be perfectly right and in harmony with God's character. But we have to understand, though, is that God is under no compulsion at all to give his love, his special love, the redeeming love that we're talking about in these verses, he's under no compulsion at all to give that to anyone. He gives to those whom he chooses according to his purposes. So the first chain is foreknowledge. The first link in that chain is foreknowledge. The second link is predestination. The third link is calling. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Now, we've already run into this word called, right? Verse 28 it referred to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, this word called or calling in the New Testament, it has a couple of different meanings. One of those meanings, and you especially see this in the Gospels, are what we refer to as the external call, the general invitation that is made to humanity at large, to trust in Jesus Christ. You heard it a few moments ago during the communion when, when Jonathan was speaking to us before serving the bread and, and the juice, that, that called and that invitation to invite Christ into your life. You see Jesus doing this in his ministry. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I make this general external call every sermon here on Sunday morning where we invite those of you who don't know Christ, and we encourage you, let today be your day of salvation. Turn from sin and embrace Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, and you experienced this. Most of you, you sat under numerous messages and teachings of the gospel, and you didn't believe it, right? You heard it. You heard it, you heard it, and yet it did not make a change in your life. And then one day, something happened, okay? You know, you remember the old cartoons where the cartoon character, all of a sudden, you know, a light bulb goes off above their head, right? One day in your life, something clicked, ding, the light went off. What happened? That's the calling that is being referred to here in verse 30. A good example of what's happened and what this word means and what happened to you who are Christians and who are believers We see in John chapter 11 in the physical realm We have an example that helps us understand what is occurring in the spiritual realm In John 11, Jesus comes to the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus He'd been sent for He stopped at one too many rest stops, apparently, whatever, didn't make it in time, right? Lazarus dies. In fact, he's been in the tomb for a few days. He stinks, his sisters say. He's wrapped in grave clothes. Jesus comes to the tomb, right? He's weeping, shortest verse in the Bible, John 11, 30, but Jesus wept, right? And so he's weeping over his friend Lazarus, and then in a loud voice, he says, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus. Come to life. Get out here, Lazarus. Or something along those lines, he said, right? And what's the next thing you see? You see Lazarus shuffling out of that tomb, wrapped in these burial clothes. The dead man, the man who had been dead, has now been brought to life, and he's responding to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened there physically and that verbal call to Lazarus is a beautiful picture of what happens to all of us in the spiritual realm. We start out dead in our trespasses and sins. Again, every one of us shaking our fists at God, at least in a metaphorical sense of the word, rejecting God, living for self, living for our own purposes and ends. This is how we begin life absolutely dead in sin incapable of doing anything pleasing to God righteous before God we've learned this as we went through Romans chapter 3 but at the appointed time you know God chose and he foreknew and he predestined and foreknowledge and predestination it comes into our time and space at an appointed time through the calling the effectual internal calling of our Lord Jesus Christ And at that point in time in your life that God had appointed, the Holy Spirit said, come alive! Come forth! And he gave us new hearts that now were alive, and we loved Christ, and we wanted to turn from our sins and follow Jesus Christ. This is the calling that is here. It is a calling that cannot be resisted. As Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And everyone that God has given to Jesus Christ when he calls them will come to him. So there's a link that is foreknowledge. There's a link that is um, predestination. There's the link of of um, calling, and now there's the link of justification Those whom he called, he also justified We've talked a lot about justification, I'm not going to revisit it all We've been in, on this topic for a long time in the book of Romans But just a reminder, justification is God Declaring us righteous and blameless before him Due to the life and the death and the resurrection of jesus christ and his life becomes our life god declares that we're no longer guilty of our sins we're no longer his enemies we're treated as righteous sons and daughters of god as if we had actually never sinned at all and why does god declare us righteous and his sons and daughters no longer guilty is it because we're better looking than everybody else well that's one factor um no it's not right or is it because we're better no of course not it's because before the foundations of the world god decided ahead of time to set his love upon us for some mysterious reason that we cannot decipher or understand the final link in this golden chain is glorification those whom he justified he also glorified One day, all of sin in our lives, in this world, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago, it's going to be eradicated. The world's going to be restored and recreated. All things will be made new, including us, new bodies that can no longer sin. Sin is off the table for us to actually be able to fulfill. And the thing I love about this verse, the thing to notice about it, is that our glorification has not occurred yet, right? We're between justification and glorification. And what we know here in Romans 5 to 8, that word sanctification, where we're being conformed to the image of Christ. But that sanctification, when it's completed, one day we're going to be glorified in the future. And yet, the tense of the verb is past tense in this verse. Why is it past tense? Why isn't it future tense? Why isn't it in all who have been justified, one day in the future you will be glorified? Because this is the plan of God. And it's invincible. And it's unbreakable. It is a done deal. Take it to the bank. This is our destiny. To be glorified. To be made like Jesus Christ. These words are five links in this invincible, unbreakable golden chain that redeems us. Yet many uh, non-Christians, many well-meaning Christians, they come to these words and they, they emotions are stirred and objections are created And when you look at these objections, they really fall into a couple of categories, right? One of the categories, no matter how it's phrased and expressed, the the objections have to do with, you know, God is predestinating and he's in charge and sovereign. Then how do we reconcile evil in the world? How do we reconcile the evil that we do as human beings? Are we responsible for this if it's actually part of the plan of God? And, And how do we come to grips with this? That's a a common objection, suffering, evil in the world in light of these truths. Another category has to do with free will. If God predestinates us, how does he do this without violating our free will? Can he predestine in the way that I've described without doing violence to our will? These are the objections. Let's, Let's start with the suffering, evil one. We touched on this a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks back clearly the Bible teaches that God is sovereign over everything, right? He's sovereign over the good and the bad of life. He's sovereign over evil and suffering. He is in control of this world. And somehow, even in the midst of evil and suffering, He works good, and He brings about this plan that He's talking about, right? Now, this upsets people. I've had a lot of conversations on this, and I get it. I mean, you think about the horrible massacres that have happened In our world, even in the last couple of weeks, think of the genocides that our world has seen in our lifetime. The Holocaust, the millions upon millions of people murdered in that utopia known as the Soviet Union, China. I mean, think about all the millions of people who have been violated and murdered. And God is in control? It's It's a natural question. It's a good question to ask you know rather than dealing with all the individual instances of genocide and massacres and evil and suffering that in the world when i talk, i just i encourage all of us let's just go right to the center of the christian faith Because when you look at all the massacres and genocides and everything else that have occurred in the world, theologically speaking, the most heinous thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity was when humanity rejected the perfect God-man who came to earth, lived a perfect life, came to bring salvation to the people, and they rejected him, tortured him, and murdered him on a cross. The absolute worst crime because it was done against somebody who was absolutely innocent and perfect. And so we look at what's at the very heart of Christianity, and what we see here is that God is sovereign over that heinous act, and those who carried out the act are responsible for the sin. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching his sermon at Pentecost, this is what he says to the men of Israel. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men what's he saying god chose he ahead of time set jesus apart he selected him ahead of time for a destiny what was that destiny to die on the cross the crucifixion and the death of christ was not an accident an accident or the, the, you know, the convergence of a series of unfortunate events. It was the definite plan. It was the predestined plan of God. Right? And yet what you see here, the people who screamed crucify him are held responsible for that heinous sin. Listen, I get why you may be confused or you, this, this issue leaves an unchecked box in your mind when it comes to Christianity. I want to encourage you this week. If you have questions about this, if you have, you know, you know different variations or objections, I want you to email those to us. In fact, I want you to email them to Brian Lumshu Chan. He's our director of discipleship. Brian's over here. Good. Y'all, he was up here earlier. He's preaching next week from verses 31 to 39 and he's going to answer every one of your objections. Okay? You're welcome. Uh, (laughs) Seriously, though, let let me leave you with a nugget that helps me in, in these types of conundrums. And it is a conundrum. I so appreciate what God says to the prophet Isaiah. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, and, and this type of a, of a question about God and his sovereignty and the world that we're in, and it creates a conundrum in your heart and your mind, could I encourage you that if all of your boxes are checked and you have figured God out before you commit your life to Christ, what you've actually done is you've created a God in your own image. There should be some unchecked boxes in our spiritual experience. There should be some conundrums and some confusing ideas that we can't totally reconcile because if we can reconcile everything, our God is as small as our intellect. So there are some things that are beyond our understanding and God just says, take it by faith. Trust in my goodness. I am sovereign and humans are responsible and I promise you it will all work out in the end because I'm the perfect, righteous God. So what about free will? Right? I mean, doesn't predestination violate free will? Well, we have to start by understanding what is free will. When people say free will today, what does that mean? And, and essentially, it's the assertion that we are all autonomous, morally neutral beings who are free and able to choose option A or option B or option C or however many options there are from a posture of complete objectivity. We're we're, we're presented with a selection of options, and we exercise our free will as morally neutral, perfectly objective creatures. I choose A, or I choose B, and nothing influences that decision. And we need to recognize something this morning. We need to recognize that this philosophy of an autonomous spiritual ability that we supposedly have is nothing more than the result of a philosophy of secular humanism. It is not biblical, and it is at the heart of every false religion in our world today. To say it more bluntly, if you stop to think about this idea that that we are morally neutral beings, completely objective, able to choose A or B, that's just irrational. It's not even logical, and it certainly isn't biblical. There's no such animal as neutral free will. Not at all, okay? We need to understand that. The will... The will is nothing more than a faculty of our hearts, of our soul, of who we are as the inner man. The will is a faculty of these things. It carries out our desires. It carries out the the things that are the factors in our lives that create these desires. I mean, why do you choose steak over tofu? Okay? Okay? There's an underlying desire. It's kind of obvious to me, right? But there's an underlying reason for that choice. There's a desire there, right? Every choice we make, there are factors that are exerting influence on that decision. And the Bible says that our will is an expression of of the underlying heart that is within us, our soul. Our will is not free, (laughs) in the way that society means free. Our will is enslaved to our hearts, whatever that heart may be. The heart is the engine which drives the will. Okay, does that make sense? And so we have to look at the heart, and and Dr. Dwayne Spencer, for example, he says, the person who hasn't yet come to Christ, the person who has not yet received that effectual call, what is he like? He's the unregenerate man. He's hopelessly enmeshed in sin, bound by Satan with the cords of spiritual death, wholly disinterested in the things of the Creator. This is who we are. And the will chooses in harmony with this heart until God changes the heart. So so with predestination, man is not being forced to... Uh, by some external matter, like God or some other thing, to do things that he doesn't want to do. The devil doesn't make you do it. Okay? We decide to do it. Now, the devil may play off of a, a desire that we have in our hearts and tempt us, but we decide to do it. And the heart is what drives that. And so it's not like, you know, there's all this mass of humanity saying, God, why are you making me sin? I don't want to do this. I want to believe in Jesus and you won't let me. Not at all. That's not what's happening. Humanity is doing what humanity wants to do. They're driven by their heart. What, the beauty of predestination when it comes to will is God does not violate our will, right? Our will does what our heart wants to do. What God does is he changes our wanter, okay? He changes our wanter. He changes our heart. Why, un, unbelievers, those of you, you, maybe you were here last week, you heard me last week say, listen, the, the first step in your spiritual journey is for you to begin to pray and ask God to give you a heart that loves Jesus, right? And at that point, when God answers that prayer for you, you're going to see something miraculous happen. Your desires change. You don't want to live for sin anymore. And even when you sin, you're convicted about it. And instead, what you want is Jesus Christ. God changes our wanter. He changes our hearts. And when he changes our heart, The will then makes different decisions. Nod your head if that that sinking with you, okay? This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly I say to you, your biggest need is that you be born again, that you be given a new heart so that your will will act differently. Well, so what? Right, most important question. So what? What do these five links have to do with our everyday life? How's it going to make a difference? in the weeks ahead. You know, I think if we boil all this down into something that we can take with us this week, that these truths and this golden chain, I believe it, it gives us this unshakable assurance that nothing, absolutely nothing, can stop God from accomplishing our complete redemption and restoration. So the suffering that you're going through The trials and tribulations that we are experiencing, those things are not evidence that God is punishing or turning his back on us. It is evidence that God is accomplishing his plan in us and through us to conform us to Jesus Christ. This week, newsflash, you are going to sin. Except for my wife. She won't sin this week, baby, okay? Even she's gonna sin. We're all gonna sin, right? Right? And the beauty of this is that even though we're going to sin this week, God is not going to forsake us. He's not going to turn His back on us because He set His love upon us before the foundations of the world. When He did this, did you not think that He knew you were going to continue to sin? That you were going to continue to struggle? Of course He did. And, and this is why He encourages and exhorts us. When you sin this week, uh, Relax. I'm not saying take the sin lightly. We should never take it lightly. But relax. God still loves you. You're still his son. You're still his daughter. He still delights in you. He's still working for your good. And he's going to bring good even out of the sin that we commit this week that violates his law and his will. See in these verses that There's something bigger at play here. We are not the focal point of these verses. We are not the focal point of this golden chain. God is. It is God who chooses to set love. It is God who predestines. It is God who calls. It is God who justifies, and it is God who glorifies. And the beauty of these verses is this everybody who God sets His love on before the foundations of the world ever began, every single person that He's selected to love in this special way, every single one of those people, He has predestinated to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And every one of those people however large a number that it will be, and it will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens, the Bible tells us, he calls every single one of them effectively, and he brings them to life, and he justifies every one of them, and his promise is that every one of those people who he foreknew, and he predestined, and he called, and he justified, every last single one of them will be glorified and receive this divine inheritance, and he will not lose a one. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never, ever, read the last two words with me, cast out. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for the promise that we have, this assurance that your love for us is so deep it even overcomes our ongoing struggles with sin. Your decision to love us and to bring us into your family is so strong and irrevocable that even when we respond wrong to trials and tribulations, to our suffering, you are a patient, loving Father. You don't kick us out of your family. You don't turn your back on us. You love us through the tribulation and you bring us out the other side. God, if we ever need evidence for how truly loving and awesome and gracious you are, this right there proves it. Thank you for doing this work in our life and for the one here this morning who does not yet know Jesus and is not following him, I would ask that you give them, even today, that heart that yearns for Christ. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.